Let's close our eyes with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for being a gracious and faithful God to us. Whenever we lose sight and get caught up in our own plans and agendas, Father, you always bring us back to your holy agenda. Uh, Father, we just ask that you give us hearts, that you renew our hearts, um, so that we fully submit to that agenda and not seek to be kings of our own little kingdoms, but instead participate fully in your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so we're in the season of ordinary time from a few weeks back in June to the end of November and the beginning of Advent. Uh, I think most of you guys are Marthama, right? All three of you are Marthama? So you guys are familiar with the church calendar, and basically for half the year, we have what's called ordinary time. Uh, During the time that's not ordinary time, like Advent, Christmas, Lent, everything else, we're patterning our liturgies and our scripture readings and preaching on the life of Jesus. But during ordinary time, it's kind of a time to try and reflect what does it mean to be the church when we don't necessarily see Jesus physically in front of us anymore. Uh, And that's historically what churches have done during ordinary time. And so we're going to be doing that from June to November. We're going to be in the book of Acts, which has 28 chapters. We have less than 20 weeks, so we're going to have to march through it at a pretty quick clip. And we're going to be examining the question, what is the church? Why does the church exist? What is it here for? And why do we continue to gather as the church? So last week, we looked at Acts chapters 1 and chapters 2. Me and Shane did, and it was great. Uh, Jesus ascended to heaven, and he told the community of disciples, there's about 120 disciples left, he told them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come and empower them. And they didn't really understand what was going on, but they obeyed Jesus. And in the meantime, we talked about this, the disciples select Matthias, to replace Judas as one of the 12 witnesses or apostles who had been with Jesus from the very beginning, from his baptism to the time of his ascension, basically so that there can be people that the rest of the Christians can point to, hey, these guys were actually with Jesus from the very beginning, and there are 12 of them. And then the Holy Spirit does come down as promised in Acts chapter 2, and the disciples start speaking in tongues to the amazement of the huge crowd of gatherers, and Peter preaches the first sermon, and 3,000 people are baptized and saved. So that's Acts 1 and 2, kind of in a nutshell. And looking at that, uh, we said that these first two chapters of Acts really summarize the entire theme of the book as a preview. And this is what we gleaned from those two chapters. First of all, Christ founds a new world, a new society. The task of the church is not to itself change the world. The task of the church is to bear witness that God has changed the world because of Jesus Christ and to invite everyone else into that new reality governed by Christ through the power of the Spirit. That's what Peter preaches. And therefore, the task of the church is to implement the resurrection of Christ in anticipation of the final reconciliation of all things that's coming in the new heavens and in the new earth. And we spent some time last week talking about that. So with that overarching theme in mind, basically that the church is called to be a witness that Jesus is Lord and an agent of his kingdom doing his work in the world, those are, that's kind of the themes of the, the whole book. Let's turn to Acts chapter 3. So I'm going to start off by just reading the chapter to you so that... Um, you know, don't, don't let these words just wash over you. I think a lot of times when we read scripture in church, sometimes we can turn our minds blank and we are not actually paying attention. But really try to imagine in your mind what's going on here. So, again, the apostles are leading this community of over 3,000 people at this point who believe that Jesus is Lord. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 3. 
One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, at three o'clock in the afternoon, and a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate, so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's Portico, utterly astonished. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. You Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. But you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and by faith in his name, his name itself has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given him this perfect health in the presence of all of you. And now, friends, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. In this way, God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is, Jesus, who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you from your own people a prophet like me. You must listen to whatever he tells you. And it will be that everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be utterly rooted out from the people. And all the prophets, as many, have, as many as have spoken, from Samuel and those after him, also predicted these days. You are the descendants of the prophets and of the covenant that God gave to your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and in your descendants, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Okay, so I think the best way to help make this very long passage make sense to you is to not hold you in suspense, but basically skip to the end and tell you what I think the passage is all about, and then we're going to unpack it phrase by phrase. So, uh, reading the different commentaries and, and things and study, I think this is what the passage of Acts 3 tells us. The Holy Spirit comes to the church to help us see the world in its brokenness so that we can speak into that brokenness Jesus' name in accordance with Jesus' reign and with Jesus' authority. So let me say that again because I know it's dense. The Holy Spirit comes upon the church to help us see the world in its brokenness so that we can speak into that brokenness Jesus' name 
with, in accordance with Jesus' reign and with Jesus' authority. So let's unpack that phrase by phrase. First of all, the Spirit comes upon the church. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week, but I think we should go into this a little bit more here. Uh, we have to remember that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, wrote Acts as a sequel to the Gospel of Luke, right? And when we read the story of the healing of the paralyzed man here right after the anointing of the church by the Holy Spirit, that should cause us to remember Jesus' story in the gospel. This is actually a trick that you guys can uh, use in your own personal devotions and stuff. When you read the Bible, especially the New Testament, know that almost every phrase is an echo of something else in scripture. And so part of the way of, uh, that you unpack meaning in that passage you're reading is to look for what are the other connections, what are the other parts of the Old Testament or earlier in the New Testament that this connects to. So here, like we're reading about how Peter and John healed a paralyzed man, right? But this should remind us of when Jesus healed in the gospel. What Luke is trying to do is to show us that the same spirit that filled Christ now fills the church. It's Christ's spirit that's within us now. So when you look at Luke 4, this is the beginning of the gospel of Luke, you hear Jesus saying this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then immediately after that, Luke 4 and 5, what do you see? Healings, driving out demons. In Luke 5, Jesus heals a leper and a paralyzed man. Why? Because Jesus is demonstrating that the Spirit of the Lord really is upon him. He really does have authority, and he's showing that his power is for good. Now, let me pause here and take a little bit of a, di a digression. We who have been raised in the West in a very scientific, rational world, we love Jesus' message about loving enemies. We love this idea that our guilt has been taken away, right? We're no longer condemned by God. But when it comes to the healings and the driving out of demons and all that stuff, we start to get a little antsy. We start to get a little skeptical, usually. I know I do because I'm more of a rational sort of thinker. It just doesn't sound very scientific. It, it's not founded on empirical data. There's no replicable trials, right? It just sounds so primitive and uncivilized. So I'm not gonna go too deep into this because it's really a separate conversation, but Charles Taylor, this Canadian philosopher, wrote in his book, A Secular Age, that the modern Western scientific point of view, like all points of view, blind us to certain realities that can't be proven using the tools that only make sense within that point of view. Because we assume that reality is just physical matter, we're blind to spiritual realities that other cultures and other times have always been attentive to. And I, I thought of a good illustration that kind of explains this. This is like really fascinating, but there's a lot of good evidence that the ancient Greeks did not have a word for the color blue because they could not conceive of the color blue. They didn't have a word for blue, and so they, had, they were not able to see blue. The ancient Greeks. So that's why if you read Homer's poems and stuff, uh, he d refers to the sea as the wine-dark sea, and the sky is always gray or yellow, but it's never blue. And people have been looking into this, and there's this fascinating relationship between per perception and our language, the language that we put to it, right? And so kind of what it's saying is once people, once the Greeks came into contact with cultures that had a word for blue, all of a sudden they started to see blue. It's like this really interesting relationship. And the point is here, there are real spiritual forces that interact with and are united to our physical world. The biblical worldview clearly teaches that. And even though the Western world doesn't train us to be perceptive to them, they are, that doesn't mean that they're not there. Sometimes we just have to have 
return to biblical language to understand that. And when you look at the Bible, the Old Testament, you see there are people who attempt to manipulate those spiritual forces for their own gain. Often they're called sorcerers or magicians. So in the story of Egypt, do you guys remember like Moses is competing against the Egyptian magicians who work for Pharaoh? In Babylon, Daniel is interpreting dreams, but then Nebuchadnezzar has his own court of magicians and astrologers and all that kind of stuff. And then here comes Jesus, and he's doing wonderful signs that justify his reign, his kingdom. But when you compare Jesus to all their stories of sorcery or magic, his miracles are not a manipulation of reality for his own selfish gain. His miracles are seeking the restoration of the marginalized to full inclusion with society. It's the healing of broken people and broken communities out of love. That's the difference. And so when Luke follows up Jesus' spirit, falling upon the church like tongues of fire in Acts 2, with the story of the church healing broken people and including them in society in Acts 3, we should see that Luke is trying to explain that the same power, the same principle, the same spirit that lived in Jesus now lives in all of us who call upon Jesus' name. And this idea that an apprentice can inherit the spirit of his master has clear precedent in scripture, and we actually read about it today. You guys remember the story from 2 Kings chapter 2 that we read today? What do we find there? Elisha is the apprentice of Elijah. He's trained up by Elijah to continue his ministry after Elijah's gone. And Elijah knows his time on earth is ending. And Elijah asks Elisha, hey, you've, I've been training you for so many years. What do you want as your inheritance? And Elisha asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. That's basically asking for Elijah's power, uh, Elijah's strength. And Elijah and Elisha cross the Jordan River to where God has called Elijah, and Elijah rolls up his cloak, and he strikes the Jordan River, and the river divides into two so they can cross it on dry ground. So Elijah divides the waters, they cross to the other side, they're talking, and then Elijah is caught up by these like chariots of fire, as how it's described, a whirlwind of fire, and he is raised up to heaven, he ascends to heaven. So what does that make us think of? That, that makes us think of the story of Jesus ascending to heaven in Acts chapter 1. And Elisha sees Elijah go up, he picks up his cloak, and then he goes to the Jordan River, and he strikes the river, and it divides in two. And that's a clear sign that he's inherited the spirit of Elijah. And that's the exact picture of what has happened to the church. It's not just Peter and John. If we really believe this, it means that all of us who have been baptized have received this spirit. It's true of you and me, too. We have received the spirit of Christ. Once Christ ascended, his spirit is available to all of us who are baptized. And so we who call upon the name of Christ are empowered for the mission of Christ in the world. And that brings us to the second point. Uh, the spirit comes upon the church, but it comes for a purpose. It comes for a mission to help us truly see the world and its brokenness. So Acts chapter 3, verses 2, a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the beautiful gate so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. So what's going on here? Why is it so significant? Why does Luke draw attention to the fact that the man was lame from birth? Well, there was a prevalent idea at the time that God in his justice would not punish someone with blindness or deafness or lameness unless they had some sort of sin. So if someone were physically deformed, there was this assumption that it was because of their sin. Either God foresaw that they would be a sinful type of person, so he allowed them to be you know, cursed from birth, basically, or God was punishing their parents for their sin. 
And this idea had important implications because it then justified social exclusion. So notice Acts chapter 3, verses 3. This man is laid outside the temple gates. And why is that? For a Jew, the most important thing is worshiping God in the temple. That's what means you're a Jew. And so to be someone who cannot enter the temple gates means that you are someone who's unclean, someone who's impure. You're a physical manifestation of sinfulness. You can never be in the presence of God. And this situation should remind us of the story of Jesus in the Gospel of John chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples are walking by a man who's, who was blind from birth, and he's known to everyone as blind from birth. And his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus replies, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. And then Jesus immediately heals him. And so what Jesus is trying to say is like, look, don't blame this guy. When you come across brokenness, don't try and see why the person is broken. Who's to blame for the person's brokenness? The point for us is to heal the person of their brokenness. This is really important for us to understand. The Jesus of the gospel is utterly uninterested in giving explanations of why people suffer. He's just interested in healing people's sufferings. The entire logic of the gospel is not explaining evil, but crushing it and saving us from it. A lot of times we're interested in the question, why does a good God let suffering and evil happen? And I think we need to instead ask something like this question. There is suffering and evil in the world. Now what are you going to do about it? Christianity not only says that there is a reason for suffering and evil in the world, it also says that all of the suffering and evil in the world has been taken by God himself on the cross and destroyed so that when the universe is finally restored, like Peter was talking about in Acts 3, everything's going to be radiant and glorious and every tear will be wiped from every eye. Christianity says that all suffering and evil is borne by the only one who can bear it, who helps you bear it, and can even help you turn it into good. It says that suffering and evil in the world is a grievous injustice that cries out for all men and women of goodwill to fight it. And it enrolls you in God's army in this cosmic battle against evil, a battle where we know that victory is certain. And the first step in winning that battle is to see the hurting, excluded person. Because I think it is so easy for us to avoid even looking at that person, to seeing that person, to blind ourselves to the reality of that person, to make it easier for us to go about our daily lives unchanged. Uh, there's this uh, song in Malayalam, actually, written by the, prof- by the poet Sadhu Kochukunyu Ubadeshi. He was actually a Marthama lay preacher, so yay Marthama people. He wasn't ordained, he was born in the 1800s, and he wrote many of the songs in the Marthama songbook. And when I was a kid, I remember my dad would play this song on the guitar and sing it, and my mom would sing it sometimes too. Uh, And I'm not the best at Malayalam, I can't even say the language, and I couldn't understand the words, but even just listening to the tune, I could tell how sad it was. I think you guys might, I'm going to try to sing the song a little bit, but I think you guys might know it, it's like, Okay, so basically that translated means, uh, but seated high in the heavenly throne room, I have my Lord, an advocate who truly sees me and constantly thinks of me. Anyway, it was stuck in my head for some reason uh, two weeks ago when I was visiting home, and I asked my parents to explain the song to me because I didn't know what it meant. Uh, and they explained to me the story of this poet, Sada Kochukunu Ubadeshi, 
who's on Wikipedia, so you can find him there too. And all of his life, he was extremely poor. He has like this really weird looking face. Like he's, he's like my height about uh, and like gaunt, like super skinny and his eyes are just big. Uh, and he spent his entire lifetime and energy devoting, devoted to preaching the kingdom of God in Kerala and Tamil And he was a powerful preacher. He built up like these YMCAs back in the 1800s for young men to not be like drinking, but instead have like things to do that are productive and built up churches, all that kind of thing. But he never had any money. And he was so poor, anytime he traveled, he looked dirty, he had ragged old clothes, he didn't have anything to eat, he didn't have any money. So he knew what it was like to be ignored, to be someone who is not just not seen, but actively avoided. It's one thing to not see someone, but it's, it's, it's not just that that he experienced. It wasn't not just not being seen, it was being actively ignored, because looking at him evoked this kind of pity and disgust and we don't want that to ruin our day by seeing that on the streets, right? Sometimes, you know, I remember when I was at UT, you have homeless people on the drag, right? And you try not to look at them because it brings you down, right? And so in one of the verses of the songs he sings, he says, uh, I'm not going to sing it, but basically in the verse he says, people would walk by him and he would be in need of help, like maybe he had lost something or he was trying to ask for help and they would see him but they would not really see him. It's really poetic the way he writes it. It's better in my own. Uh, and they just keep walking on by it. But the only thing that kept him going, kept him moving, was faith that there's a heavenly father who truly sees him. The entire song is about that. It's about being a poor person, being basically a beggar, who's, who would be crushed by the knowledge that no one cares about him, except for the fact that he has confidence that there's a God in heaven who sees him and loves him. And it's the spirit of that God who truly sees that is in us now. That's what it means to be the church. Acts chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, look at us. See, this poor man, this crippled man, was so used to being an outcast, so used to not even being permitted to enter into the temple, uh, so truly downcast, that even when asking Peter for money, he wouldn't look him in the face, right? And Peter and John stare at this man, and they truly see him. And Peter says, look at us. We see you. See us seeing you. So before we start talking about miracles and power, let's get this straight. The spirit of Christ, the spirit of God that's within us, empowers us to look in the faces of the downcast and see them and gives us the boldness and the confidence to tell them, we see you, see us, look at us seeing you. That in itself is a witness to the power of God in the gospel, that we are no, so, no longer so bent in upon ourselves, so wrapped up in our own problems and desires and dreams and fears that we can't see the human need aching for connection and liberation and love all around us. And that brings us to the last point. The spirit of God in the church not only allows us to see the world in its brokenness, but it also helps us speak Jesus's name with power in accordance with Jesus's reign and with Jesus's authority. And here I think we have to talk a little bit about uh, miracles in the church again. And I think there's a lot of debate about this, right? Do miracles still happen? Why aren't they happening if 
they are supposed to happen, or we don't really believe, we don't talk. I know in the CSI church growing up, they never really talked about miracles. I think the Martha Church is similar sometimes. Uh, and some people really have hang-ups about it. When you look at the book of Acts, which is supposed to tell us what the church is like, really if you think of, I, I've always thought about like writing a screenplay one day on the book of Acts because it's really cool. And you would have season one, and it would really just be like Peter's story. And then after like halfway in the book, it becomes Paul's story. So that's season two, right? Uh, so really, you're just looking at the lives of two people over a span of 30 years. And really, what you're reading are like the greatest hits, right? Like the most exciting times. But it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that like Peter woke up every day and like healing, healing, healing. But what that teaches us is over the course of a lifetime in a community that's really centered around Christ, we should expect some extraordinary things to happen. Some prayers being answered, some miracles happening even. Uh, when we're really focused in on the kingdom of God, when we're really focused in on being witnesses for the kingdom. So that should protect us from two different distortions. There are some people who say, you know, miracles stopped after the first generation, and it was just to help people prove that Christ was really with them. But when you look at scripture, there's no real evidence that supports that kind of position. Um, if you do have that position, I invite you to talk to me about it, because I'd love to talk about it, because I used to believe that, that miracles don't happen anymore. And it also pr protects us from the second uh, distortion, where I think we're tempted to start to see God as our own, like, miracle factory, to help us as our personal assistant as we go about the day. So, okay, God, like I didn't study for this test. Uh, somehow magically change the Scantron sheet so that I can have 100. You can do anything. You can give me that 100. I have prayed that prayer before at UT. Uh, it did not come true, unfortunately. But um, so it protects us from both of those things. Instead, when we're focused on Christ, we should expect miracles to happen. Peter says, I don't, silver and gold, I don't have any. But what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And they pick the guy up and his ankles are made strong and he's able to leap, praising God, right? Like amazing things can happen. And we're supposed to say Jesus's name in accordance with Jesus's authority and with his reign. So Jesus's authority. We already kind of talked about this. The same spirit that was in Christ is now in us. But I think we have a really good example of this when we look at Peter, Right? If you read Peter in the Gospels, I'm not like this, so I admire Peter, but I also find him, like, if I knew him in real life, I think I would find him annoying. Because he's the kind of person who's, like, really blunt, really brash. He's the first person. I'm the kind of person where if someone says something, I'm not quick to say something back. But he's the type of person who will just say whatever comes to mind. There's a story at the Transfiguration where all of a sudden they see uh, Jesus with Moses and Elijah, and then Peter's like, oh, it's good that the three of you are here. We're good. Let's build some houses for each of you. And then the next line in the gospel says, Peter didn't know what he was saying. Like, he just talks without thinking. He's the kind of guy, like, he sees Jesus walking on the water. He's like, if it's really you, let me walk on water too. And then he's like, oh, no, I'm drowning. Jesus, help me. Uh, he's the guy who tells Jesus at the Last Supper, you know, Jesus is saying, you guys are all going to scatter and you're all going to abandon me. And Peter's like, I will never leave you. And then... That night, like a few hours later, Peter's like, I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy, right? And then he ends up weeping. But this guy is totally changed in Acts. The first half of Acts is like all Peter, right? Acts chapter 2, it's his sermon. Acts, he's doing miracles. Uh, later on, we read about how people try to touch the hem of Peter's garment to be healed. It's the same thing that used to happen to Jesus, right? What has happened? Jesus' authority 
because his spirit has come on Peter, his authority rests on Peter too. And that's true of all of us as well. Do we really believe that? I don't think we really do. Not really. Um, and we're supposed to call upon Jesus' name in accordance with Jesus' reign. So there's this concept. I don't know if you guys have heard of the theologian N.T. Wright. But he says that the kingdom of God is both here now and not yet. So at the cross, Jesus uh, is hanging upon the cross, and he really did end it all there. He once for all dealt with evil, with sin, with death, with the devil, and he says on the cross, it is finished. But if you keep on reading, you find at the end of Revelation that Jesus says, when he returns, it is done. So what's the difference between those two things? Well, it's kind of mysterious, but one way to think about it is... um, I don't know if any of you guys have experienced like mixing tracks. I have a little bit because for my weddings, I'd ha- for my uh, sister's wedding, I kind of helps do some of the music things. And so you can either cleanly split tracks or you can do a fade out, right? And the fade out gradually decreases until the new song starts up. And I think one way to think about the age that we live in right now, after the resurrection of Christ, but before the second coming, is a fade out. We still see evil in the world, right? We still see sin in the world. We still sin. We still see death in the world. There are still evil spiritual forces in the world even. Um, But we still confess that Christ is reigning, that Jesus is Lord now because it's a fade out. Both songs are playing at the same time. So that kind of uh, leads us to this question, like how does this really apply to us? Because you're saying, Brian, okay, we should expect extraordinary things to happen. But I don't know if I really have faith if I saw a homeless person who had, like, a broken leg. I could say, you know, silver and gold, I don't have any. I don't have anything except Bevo Bucks. But in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. You know, I don't know if I really have the faith to say that. Um, And I think I I really like something that really stuck out to me in Acts chapter 3 is what Peter said. Such as I have, I give. We should expect extraordinary things to happen. And Peter says, like, your faith, uh, it is by faith that this man has been healed. And elsewhere in the Gospels, it talks about how, like, Jesus would enter into some regions. And this is kind of crazy, but he wouldn't be able to do miracles because there wasn't faith there. Uh, So we should expect also, like, because we're still in this fade-out period, sometimes our own lack of faith will mean extraordinary things don't happen. Sometimes the lack of faith of other people there. Sometimes we'll be opposed by people uh, when we're trying to do great things. But such as we have, let's give. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, even if you don't have faith that you can heal someone physically, I don't have faith that I can do that. Like, who am I? Um, I don't always have faith that I can do that. But whatever is within you, give. So this reminds me of a story that I heard yesterday at our church's VBS. I went back. And this is the first time at a VBS presentation that I ever cried. So I'm going to try and... uh, Try and say the story. I'm not going to say it as well as the Hutchin did because I just heard it yesterday. But I think it applies exactly to the situation. So there was, there's a story of this boy in India. Uh, I guess the Hutchin heard this story. I don't know. But I'm, I'm telling you what he said. So there's this boy, this orphan boy at a railway station, right? And he would polish people's shoes. And so every morning, in order to make enough money to buy food and to live, he would cry out at the railway station, shoe polish, sir, shoe polish, sir, shoe polish, sir. And a lot of people would walk by, but some people would come and they would give their shoes and he would polish it and they would give him, you know, a few coins and he'd be able to save up enough for food that day. 
Well, one day he's doing that, shoe polisher, shoe polisher, but there's such a rush of people and they're all crowding together that no one really hears him. So he tries to cry out louder, shoe polisher, shoe polisher, and still they don't hear him. And they walk by and eventually some person like knocks over all his materials, all his clothes, all his money. And so he's scrambling, right? And just like everyone else, like, like we were talking about earlier, everyone else just kept walking by and they're even stepping on this poor boy as he's trying to get his stuff because they don't see him and they're actively avoiding him. He doesn't look like anything. He's small. He's, you know, not worth anyone's attention. But this one man sees him and then he helps him gather up all his things, helps him gather up his money, his clothes, everything. And the boy looks up to him and says, thank you. Thank you so much for everything. And then the man looks down at the boy and he says, son, have you eaten anything today? And the boy is, first of all, astonished because no one has ever called him, like, son before, right? And so he's just, no, sir, I, I you know, wasn't able to polish any shoes today, so I haven't been able to eat breakfast. So the man said, come with me, I'm going to buy you some breakfast. So he takes him to this restaurant uh, near the railway station, and he buys him a really nice meal. And, and the boy is so happy, he's so full, and, and the man pays for it all, and they leave the restaurant, and then the man turns and looks at the boy again, and the boy's looking up to Look at, looking up at him, and the man says, son, is there anything else that I can do for you? And the boy at this point looks up at the man, and he's just crying, and his tears are coming down his face, and he says, sir, are you Christ Jesus? Because I have heard at the state Sunday school I go to sometimes that there is a kind man who does stuff like this, and his name is Christ Jesus. And that's what we are called to be to the world, right? as the church with the spirit of Christ upon us. Yeah, maybe we don't have faith that we can do healings or you know, divide up the waters when we're trying to walk through. But we are able to act in such a way that the poor, the ignored, the downtrodden person could look at us and be like, why are you doing this? Is this something to do with the person Christ that I've heard about? That's the type of church we're called to be. So let's close our eyes in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that you would let this phrase live in our hearts. Such as we have, let us give. Um, and let us give in confidence that you have given your spirit, the spirit of Christ, to live within our hearts, Father. And Father, we ask that always we be able to, whenever we doubt, whenever we are uncertain, gaze at the cross, gaze at the love uh, that you shed for us with divine blood through your son, Jesus Christ, and have confidence of your love for us, have confidence that we have already inherited the world, and therefore we have nothing to fear in spending ourselves out and sacrificing to love others. In Jesus' name I pray. Uh, let's stand up and turn to the Nicene Creed and the liturgy, and we'll